Relationship Alive is sponsored in part by listeners like you. If you find the show to be helpful and would like to make a contribution, just visit neilsatin.com slash support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Also, just a reminder that my guide to the top three relationship communication secrets, the kinds of things that help you connect with your partner, no matter how tense the conversation is, is available to you for free. All you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And today's show is also sponsored in part by Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you choose from over 1,500 licensed therapists. Get matched with your perfect therapist who can put you on the path to a happier life and a thriving relationship. For a special offer for you, visit Talkspace.com alive. Okay, I think that's it. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. On this show, we've spoken time and time again, not only about things that you can do to take action and um, actually improve your relationship, but also the importance of getting help when you need it. And what we haven't talked much about is how do you go about that process? How do you know what's even an option for you out there in terms of help that you could get? Uh, so how do you choose a coach or a therapist? What do you bring to the table to ensure that you're going to have a successful outcome? And what could you expect? Like what's actually possible in terms of changing? Um, assuming that's what you want to do. If you want to go and just understand yourself more deeply, that's another possibility too. And we're going to get into the whole thing with perhaps the person on the planet who knows the most about what is happening in the world of psychotherapy today. His name is Jeff Zeig, and he has been on the show once before to talk about how to evolve your relationship. And I invite you to listen to our first episode together, though it's not a prerequisite for listening to this episode. That is available at neilsatin.com slash Zeig, Z-E-I-G. And if you're interested in the show notes for today's episode, you can grab those at neilsatin.com slash Zeig. Two, so Z-E-I-G and then the number two, or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Jeff Zeig, among many, many accolades and honors, is the organizer and chief architect of the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, which is perhaps the world's preeminent conference for psychotherapy, for bringing together the top minds in the field and together creating a conversation around what is possible and where the future is taking us in terms of what we could do to evolve our approaches for therapy and change and growth. Um, what he does is a lot like what I'm trying to do with this show at, around the, the topic of relationships, although it's much larger in scope. And as he just mentioned to me, he's been around the block a little bit longer than I have. So Jeff Zeig, it's such a pleasure to have you back here on Relationship Alive. Thanks so much for joining us. Neil, I'm honored, and I very much appreciate all of the work that you're doing and how you're making things available to consumers. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, let's dive right in and just talk about what is, what, what is psychotherapy? Like it's, it honestly, it's a word that I think can evoke fear in some people, psychotherapy. And in fact, I've known some people who are like, oh, I would never do that. I would never go to a therapist. I would never, you know, it just, I don't know if it frightens them or they just don't see the utility in it or what. So what is it? Maybe we could start by making it feel a little less scary. Sure. Well, psychotherapy is a relatively new innovation in human culture. The psychotherapy started in 1885 when Freud first became interested in the psychological aspects of medicine. There really wasn't any psychotherapy before Freud. What was done before Freud was that you would perhaps talk to a religious counselor. And Freud brought the idea that you could have a psychotherapy that was directly related to medicine. So it was basically as invented a medical procedure where you were looking inside the human being. Now, what you've been doing is studying relationship, but psychotherapists really didn't start studying relationship until the mid-1950s, and that was only a burgeoning start to uh, the, the, uh, the psychotherapy. Now, many years ago, I did a book called What is Psychotherapy with a collaborator, Michael Munyon, and we polled 60-plus experts to try to come up with a clear universal definition of psychotherapy, and it was very difficult because some experts would focus on one aspect of the total weave of human, human communication, like memories. Another, as, another expert would focus on relationship. Another expert would focus on behavior. Another expert would focus on attitude. So basically, we could say that psychotherapy is where one person intently works to understand another person and then bring out of that other person some of the resources that person can use to be more adaptive. And we all have areas in which we are not adaptive. We're not adaptive at procrastinating, for example, or not being motivated, for example, or being withdrawn socially or uh, having uh, gastritis or other problems that are exacerbated by stress. So all of us have areas in which we are remarkably competent and other areas where we're not functioning so well. Now, it would be nice to think that everybody could change by virtue of their own understanding, but really that's not the case. You know that one of the things that I do is to study hypnosis. I've been practicing hypnosis for more than 40 years, and I had a, a time quite a few years ago where I had an osteophyte in my neck and I could not relax my neck and shoulders. Now, I've been teaching people relaxation techniques for quite a long time, but I needed somebody outside of me. I needed the physical therapist to put some pressure against that area where there was muscle contraction so that then and only then could I begin to untangle those muscles that had become so tight. So psychotherapy, it's very hard for anyone within a system to be able to make the changes that will make that system 
function more adaptively. And coming to somebody as a psychotherapist is a very good idea because it's a much easier thing to do when somebody else is there and applying gentle pressure that helps the person to move in the direction that they're designed to go. I mean, everybody knows to eat healthy or to stop smoking or to be kind in relationships. But sometimes we need a little nudge from somebody else to help us to consolidate those goals. Yeah, sometimes it's gentle pressure and sometimes it's it's a full-on elbow and you're into those places of contraction. I'm curious for you, you, what you just mentioned is that if you're in the system, it can be difficult to know how to change the system. So what does that mean in terms of our quest for the right coach or therapist? How would you identify the person who's really best capable of helping you if you don't even necessarily really know what is going on with you? Right. Well, there are a couple of hundred of very legitimate schools of psychotherapy that exist in the world. And what I advise consumers is not to shop for a technique. Don't shop for hypnosis. Don't shop for EMDR eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Don't shop for family therapy. Shop for the human being. Every therapist has different technology that's available to him or her. And uh, shopping for a technique just uh, is a maybe the right thing to do in a medical situation, but in an interpersonal situation, you have to find the person who you really feel can help you. And so an initial psychotherapy session is like a blind date. Does this work? Is this person somebody who I feel rapport with? Is this person somebody who really understands me? Is this somebody who's working assiduously to help me? And when you can find the right person, probably that person has a technology to help you with whatever the issue is, be it a personal issue or an interpersonal issue, a physiological issue. So um, don't shop for techniques. Just find a person with whom it, you fit. And so if so, it's almost like the, the relationship and the rapport with the person carries more weight than the specific technology they bring to the situation. Yeah, like every therapist will have a technology to work with a simple phobia. Somebody's afraid of cats. And um, it may be that one person touts that his or her techniques is better than somebody else's, but every therapist, even therapists who are recently graduated from their academic program, will have a way of helping people to work with phobias. And so um, you don't need to shop for a specific technique. There's some confusion in the field of psychotherapy where psychotherapy has become medicalized. And so then there's a procedure, a medical procedure, like an algorithmic procedure that is used for a particular uh, clinical entity. Like if somebody has a phobia, there could be a, an empirically validated protocol for what to do with that uh, problem. But um, it, that makes psychotherapy seem like it's a medical procedure because in medicine we have algorithms. So if somebody has an infection or a broken bone, you have a series of concrete steps that you do to solve that problem. Now, psychotherapy is not algorithmic because the goals are not concrete. 
if the problem is an algorithm, you have a series of steps that get you to a concrete goal. Computers work on algorithms. They get you to a concrete goal. But being happy or motivated or responsible or concerned, these are not concrete goals. Most of the people who come to me for psychotherapy do not come with a concrete goal. They come because, well, one, most people come because they want to be better people and they want to live more adaptively, more happily. So when the problem is a heuristic, like love, being in love is not an algorithm. You can't follow a series of steps to be in love. There's some things that you do that you understand have heuristic value, being interested, being kind, being attentive, being passionate. And you hope that by virtue of using those simplifying assumptions, the person will fall in love with you. Um, but maybe that happens and maybe that doesn't. So a problem is that people think about psychotherapy as it's a medical discipline where there's a series of concrete steps to follow. And for some people there are, for some therapists there are. It's not the way in which I think about doing psychotherapy, which is I think somebody is lost in an unadaptive state and they need somebody else to supply the pressure that will help them to move themselves into a more adaptive state in the world. Hey, babe. Chloe? Hi, yeah, it's Hi, me. yeah, I'm in the middle of an interview right now. Oh, right, sorry, I just had something really important to talk to you about. Oh, okay, what's going on? Well, I was just doing the dishes downstairs and you put the small plates in the bottom rack again and I couldn't put any of the big items in the bottom and I just really would like it if you could try not to do that anymore. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that I put the plates on the, the small plates on the bottom rack of the dishwasher and you would really like me to put them on the top rack. Did I get it? Yeah, you got it. Okay, is there more? No. Okay, great. I'm going to get back to this conversation. Yeah, yeah, okay, you can get back. Sorry. That's okay, thanks. Have a good interview. <sighs> I think I need to text my therapist. Today's episode is brought to you by Talkspace.com, where you can send your therapist text, audio, and video messages anytime you want, or even do a live video chat. They make it easy to connect with an experienced licensed therapist that you pick based on your preferences for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy. Talkspace therapists are fully licensed and go through a rigorous screening process, in addition to thousands of hours of supervised professional training. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com alive. And as a special offer for you, you can use the coupon code alive to get $30 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com alive and the coupon code alive for $30 off. Thank you, Talkspace, for sponsoring today's episode. And now, back to the show. I think that that's something that can be a real challenge for people because they'll hear um, a particular um, therapist. I mean, there have been several on, on this show talk about how their work has been empirically shown to help, you know, 77% of couples or 85% of couples. And so when that works, that's great. But when it doesn't work, it feels like the people that I've spoken to are, are at a loss of what to do. Cause, you know, this particular therapy is 
supposed to help. Like it's been shown, proven to help couples. And, and yet if it's not helping me, what does that mean for me? Does that mean I'm beyond repair? Or, I mean, the way I like to look at it is no, you're actually just in the other 13% statistically, or, you know, that there, there are plenty of options available for you. Yeah, it's uh, in my estimation, it's a function of the relationship, and in other people's worldview, there's a series of algorithmic steps that will take you from point A to point B and get you to the promised land. In my approach, it's inventing, improvising a new approach that's tailored to the uniqueness of the person. If algorithms were all that was needed, you wouldn't need therapists. Just go to the bookstore and get self-help books. And there's a self-help book for everything right now, even self-help books for people who are addicted to self-help books. So if you could read a self-help book and follow the steps, then you don't need a therapist because you can get there by virtue of information. It's, uh, it's at the point where information is not the royal road to getting to Oz. It's not the yellow brick road to getting to Oz. And in most cases of the people who see me, they don't lack information. They lack a transformative experience that will help them to use the information they, they already have. Mm. Could you maybe talk for a moment too about Ericksonian approaches and how those interweave with this question of the relationship and coming up with something that's truly based on the client that you're sitting with? Sure. And Milton Erickson, who was my mentor from 1973 to 1980, I traveled frequently to Arizona until I moved in 1978 to be closer to Erickson. He was the doyen of brief strategic approaches to psychotherapy and also the um, most visible expert on hypnosis in the 20th century. He modernized hypnosis from an outside-in approach to an inside-out approach. What I mean from that is that most traditional hypnosis was somebody giving suggestions into a passive person or taking out negative things from a passive person. But for Erickson, the idea was to create an experiential reality where things were stimulated into play. You know, every depressed person has changed their mood. Every depressed person has enjoyed something about the beauty of the world. Every depressed person has had a goal. Every depressed person has connected with other people. So they don't really need to be taught. What they need is to be put into a situation where people will utilize the dormant resources that they already have. And basically, that's an experiential process. You live change. And it's not a didactic process of entering through your left hemisphere and explaining the steps in a, uh, a well, uh, in a in a way that sometimes seems uh, a little demeaning and juvenile. That you're explaining the steps to another adult about what it is that they need to do to get to the promised land rather than offering people some experiential realities. The people who are interested in understanding more about that, they could look into a book called Uncommon Therapy, which is a classic written in 1973, but still relevant today. Uncommon Therapy, The Psychiatric Techniques of Milton Erickson by Jay Haley. 
And uh, I also feel a particular kinship because my um, teacher in the coaching world was Chloe Madonis, who also studied with Milton Erickson. So um, I'm I'm particularly drawn to that style of uncovering the resourcefulness that that's within a person. Yeah, Chloe's a dear friend and somebody who I really admire, a senior colleague. So I'm curious for you, what it sounds like what you're saying is that in your view, it's all about creating a relationship that allows you to really uh, see in to a person and find the resourcefulness that's that's hidden to find the the places where they already know how to change, but for whatever reason, they're stuck and haven't been brought online. Yes. Now, you know, people come to me because they want to stop smoking. People come to me because they want to be better human beings. People come to me because they need support through some of the different difficult transition points in their life. So I can't generalize to say that there is one way of being in therapy. If you're suffering from a circumscribed problem, you uh, don't know how to uh, stop gambling or how to stop your addictive behavior, then it's a good thing to bring in a therapist. But if you, for example, want your relationship to grow, then you're coming to therapy for a different reason. And it's not circumscribed around changing an embedded, entrenched habit. It's, circum it's, it's more generalized to how do I uh, live life in a more enjoyable way? And, uh, it, you know, I am a consumer of therapy. I've been in and out of therapy for well over 30 years. And so I rely on therapy because, well, one, as a therapist, I'm the tool. So keeping myself well-tuned is a very good thing. And I, I, uh, I know that even though I'm especially well-educated in therapy, there are things that I can't get to by dint of my own intelligent efforts. And I need somebody to hold up a mirror to me and help me to see things from a different perspective. Hmm. I'm curious what, what you just said about, um, for instance, distinguishing the different reasons that people come in for therapy. Um, I mean, one way I've sometimes looked at it, and I could be totally wrong here, so please tell me if I am, is that the way that we are is generally a product of our habits of being. Like, So in a sense, when we want to shift something, it's about addressing our habit of how we look at the world, how we interact with the world. Yes, that we all get into entrenched calcified states and we keep on approaching a problem without necessarily understanding that there are many routes to change through cognition or emotion or behavior or relationship or physiology or uh, the way in which we perceive time. So the habits that we form, 90% of the habits that we form are really good. Unfortunately, we can also form some habits that in certain time-space continuums, they just don't work. And then we need somebody to help us to see that 
the approach that we're using is not going to help us to get where it is that we want to go. But if we can think, feel, do, relate, understand differently, then we can begin to break an entrenched habit and form new mental mechanisms. I just finished a book called uh, the, um, the Habit of a Healthy Life. It's about 30 days to a positive addiction. It's positiveaddictions.com. That's a self-help book. How can you structure things cognitively to be able to find a positive addiction that could be, for some people, playing tennis, and for other people, it could be collecting stamps, or it could be knitting, or whatever it is that gives your life substance and meaning. Now, my hope is that that book provides an algorithm, a series of steps for people to understand their negative addiction and to be able to use some of that energy to establish a positive addiction. But I know that self-help books could be like the booster stage of a, of a rocket ship. They get you off at the launching pad, but to get into orbit, you may need some different forces and that might require a, 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 a therapist or a coach to help you to get where it is that you want to go. What you were just talking about with positive addictions, that reminds me of an example I saw of your work. And I think you were working around um, helping people quit smoking and talking about the cycle of that someone goes through of building tension and then using smoking to modulate the, the tension um, that builds and how often when they try to quit something that's not helpful for them, they don't find a positive way to to modulate that tension, that tension. So it just builds and builds and builds. So is that kind of what you're talking about with the positive addictions? Somewhat. So smoking is a grammar. Smoking is a punctuation. So you do a task, you have a cigarette, you wash the dishes, have a cigarette, make a telephone call, have a cigarette, write a report, have the cigarette. So as people build tension, like if I'm seeing someone for 50, 55 minutes, I, ha I need to have some amount of time before the next session where I can decompress because the intense interpersonal nature of a psychotherapy hour is very unusual. Most people are not that close to another human being for extended periods of time. I'm a little bit of an intimacy junkie. I love the <laughs> intimacy of psychotherapy. I imagine that you do too. Definitely. But but there needs to be some punctuation. So when people stop smoking, they summate tension, they write the report, but they don't have that moment in which they would have previously had a cigarette and allowed the tension to decrease. The cigarette becomes a socially somewhat acceptable way of modulating tension. So then when somebody stops smoking, rather than some attention, they may need something to do when they finish a task. And this would be one small part of a behavioral, social program that I might create for someone. So if they spend time reading a comic book, or they spend time uh, drinking a glass of water, or talking to a friend, or reading a passage from the Bible, it, some part of a procedure that I would have for people who came to stop smoking would be that they could have a pause, a resting place, some punctuation 
after each task so that <gasps> they have a way of lowering tension. Mm. And then how would you contrast that with the positive addictions that you were talking about? Well, you have a negative addiction, which could be anything, gambling or uh, imbibing too much alcohol or drugs or, or smoking. And then this, because we're habituated, the automaticity of everyday life, like you and I are talking, but we're not thinking about how to formulate morphemes and, pheno and, and phonemes. We just talk because the automaticity of everyday life has allowed something that at one time was in our working memory to become part of our procedural memory. So when we get locked into a negative habit, there's an energy that maintains that habit. Now, as a therapist, can I help people to take that energy and do something constructive with it? Like I have many positive addictions. One positive addiction is exercise. One positive addiction is learning. One positive addiction is flying a glider because I, I love flying, uh, piloting a plane. One positive addiction is playing bridge. Now, I'm a tournament bridge player, so I could go to a tournament and I could play at a um, uh, medium level. Sometimes if on a good day I could play at advanced level, but I'm nowhere near an expert. I, I'm a good tournament bridge player. That's about it, and that's as far as I'll ever get. But I love the game. I'm not trying to be as excellent as I might want to be when I'm writing a book. So every day, every day, I spend some moments studying bridge. You can go online and watch people who are world-class play and see how they think about setting up the play of 13 cards in a bridge hand. Now, I don't have to do that religiously, so times during the day when I want to punctuate my day, I might go online and look at one or two bridge hands, which wouldn't take more than five or ten minutes to, to see what was happening. But that gives me a sense of <gasps> going from the unique intimacy of a psychotherapy situation to having a moment where um, the level of tension is a level of down regulation. There's a level of coming to a plateau so that I can re-energize for and clear my mind for whatever it is that comes next. Now, because people get into habits so easily and so quickly, you know, smoking, which is a terrible habit, but if you do smoking for a couple of weeks, suddenly you can distinguish different flavors of tobacco and you become habituated to using it. So whereas it takes one idea, smoking is cool, and a few weeks to become a smoker, you need one idea, I'm oriented to my health, and a couple of weeks to be able to extinguish that habit. But then the best thing to be able to do is to take the energy from that habit and form a positive addiction, a positive habit, something that gives your life more substance and meaning, both personally, physiologically, and socially. That makes total sense to me. And, and I'm wondering if you could give us 
a little glimpse into and if this is too personal you can just pass on this one but i'm curious to know how you structure a day you're someone who do, who's doing a ton in terms of your your professional life and your personal life and um and i think that that this question of balance and maintaining health in terms of the way you structure and punctuate your day is something that we're all debating, especially, you know, with the pace of life these days. So would you mind giving us a glimpse into what that looks like for you? Uh, as best as I can. And you keep me on track, Neil, please. Okay. So the first thing that I do when I get up uh, uh, is to exercise. And I have a, a, a small room in my home where I have exercise equipment. Now, it doesn't cost me anything. I don't think I'm going to exercise. It's just something that's now part of my procedural memory. I exercise 352 days a year because the other 13 days I'm traveling internationally and I literally can't exercise because a lot of my work is traveling and teaching therapists. So this is not anything that I have to think about. Now, while I'm exercising, I could be talking to my significant other. And if I'm not talking to her, then what I'm doing is to um, be learning. Like this morning when I was exercising, I was listening to an expert teach linguistics. Do I need to know about linguistics? No. Um, it just seemed like at the moment it was something that interested me, but I've taken courses in impressionist art and how to write a great sentence and many different courses because now with iTunes University and Khan Academy, you, you can uh, learn an awful lot of things online for basically free. So that's like I'm doubling up. One of my addictions is learning. I'm a voracious learner. One of my addictions is exercising. So I'm doing uh, both things at the at the same time. And uh, I uh, can double up on, on that addiction to, as I was driving to come to talk with you today. I was listening to an audio book of uh, Mark Twain uh, writing Huckleberry Finn and I just didn't even have that much time to be able to listen to a chapter, but okay, I'm driving my car and rather than listening to music, I was listening to a small section of an audiobook because one of my addictions is being a voracious learner. Do I need to know Huckleberry Finn to make my life better? Heck no. But okay, I just happened to thumb through what was available easily on audiobooks and I started to listen to that. So those things, after a little bit of time, become seamlessly integrated. It's not a matter of working at it. If you're working at it, like one of my hobbies is learning Spanish. I suck at languages. And uh, my, my, both of my sisters are multilingual, but learning languages is a very painstaking process for me. But every week, I go online and I talk to my Spanish teacher who lives in Querétaro, Mexico, and I have a conversation with Beatrice and I want to believe that I can learn Spanish. It's not something that I'm good at. I'm not that good at bridge. But I do these things because they give me pleasure. They have intrinsic meaning. So for someone like myself who has a lot of full-time jobs, which I do, I find a way of interspersing into 
the professional work that I'm doing, time to have a relationship, to exercise, to be with my grandchild, and these things um, are a way of creating balance in life without having to think about it. If you have to think about it, it's painstaking. If you have to think about going on a diet, it's painstaking. But when you can institutionalize healthy living, then you don't think about it and this is who you are and this is what you do. So what I try to do as a therapist is help people to make transitions between working memory. Oh, sometimes you have to use that. Like I had one Spanish lesson three Spanish lessons where we were discussing when to use the word poor and when to use the word para. And that was painstaking because I had to commit these rules into my working memory. But then once I did that and they could become into my procedural memory, then I could be more easily accurate. So human beings are designed so that things can enter into their procedural memory. And what we want to do is to have as many good things in our procedural memory as possible. We don't have to think about tying our shoes. We just tie our shoes at one time. We had to think about that, and it was in our working memory. So the idea for Ericksonian therapists is to try to bypass working memory to get things into procedural memory as quickly as possible, which is why we use evocative techniques like hypnosis. And that reminds me in terms of couples work of trying to take something that at first is often really challenging for couples, which is to notice when one or the other of them is triggered and to change the conversation. So it's all about bringing people back into regulation versus talking about whatever you're talking about and and making that, I'm seeing now that the goal is really to make that procedural so that it automatically is what you're registering when one or the other of you starts to go offline. Yeah, well, uh, when you're in a relationship, a relationship that's compulsory, for example, by virtue of marriage, then it doesn't take very much to cause people to be dysregulated. You know, as a therapist sitting with a couple, I might say, well, Christmas is coming and suddenly people <laughs> become dysregulated. And I didn't even know that that was a hot button for anyone. And some people have an allergic reaction to something that, I, that I'm talking about. So we're all emotional creatures and it's cap we're capable of getting dysregulated very quickly. And uh, especially when you're so vulnerable as when you're in a committed relationship. So part of the job is helping people to sometimes calm their reactivity, but downregulation is not central to my way of doing therapy. It's, my therapy is more like a symphony where you're regulating the amount of tension throughout the course of the symphony rather than trying to sing to people a lullaby. Like people think about hypnosis as being a kind of lullaby that makes people soporific, that puts makes people sleepy. But the hypnosis that I do is more uh, based on the rise and fall of tension that creates something that is meaningful rather than something that is just lenitive. So many couples therapists are about downregulation, keeping calm, and my work is more about how do you utilize the tensions that can be available in any given situation. Hmm, interesting. I'm curious 
from your perspective and switching a little bit back to our original line of inquiry around psychotherapy, what, what seems possible to you now, especially since you've been on the forefront of how psychotherapy is evolving through your conferences and your work, what's possible now versus what wasn't possible in therapy even 20 years ago? Sure. Well, the first 60 years of psychotherapy from 1885 until World War, the end of World War II, these were dominated by psychoanalytic schools. And if you think about the metaphor of a tree, the psychoanalytic schools were interested in, in understanding the roots. Could you understand why the tree is growing the way that it is? And if you do understand why, then that should be sufficient for the tree to be able to grow differently. So psychoanalysis and all of the um, related schools to psychoanalysis were based on looking in a vertical way, what's underneath, what are the patterns from the past that are contaminating the perspective of the present. Now, when Europe, because Europe was more traditional and was more dedicated to understanding why, whereas American pragmatism is more based on how. So then as Europe was decimated, the experts in psychotherapy came more to the United States and therapy became more under the auspices of American pragmatism. So then you had the development of behavioral schools, which if we go back to the metaphor of the tree, is like tropisms. If you shine the light to the West, the tree will go to the West. You can just use behavioral techniques. You don't need to understand why somebody has a phobia. If you use proper behavioral techniques, you can extinguish the phobia without having to understand why. And that was very controversial when it was first innovated uh, into the 1940s and early 1950s. Well, around the same time, you had a humanistic tradition that developed. Now, Freud didn't have many tools at his disposal, interpretation, clarification, um, and confrontation. Those were the basic tools of a psychoanalytic approach and with a very rigid, specified way of understanding human functioning that required a shadowy analyst who sat outside of the visual field and allowed the patient to project the uh, contaminated templates from the past. So then with the advent of behavioral schools, um, psychoanalysis started to uh, unravel. It's not the dominant discourse anymore. And then you had humanistic schools, which would be like the Joyce Kilmer School of understanding trees, just admire it. You had the development <laughs> of humanistic schools, Carl Rogers, Fritz Perls. And now what you have is a burgeoning of technology that has not existed before. If you could just understand the empathic understructure of your emotions in the humanistic tradition, you would get better. Well, then in the mid-1950s, you had an ecosystemic approach, which was the systemic way of thinking. You're not treating individuals. You're treating people within families, within contexts. And if you could change the ecosystem, you could change the tree. No, then you had a development of cognitive behavior therapy, which was based in more changing the cognitive schemas, the distorted 
belief systems that you had, the, the cognitions that you were having, and by virtue of changing those three elements, change would happen. Now, cognitive behavior therapy is the dominant discourse in psychotherapy now because it is it can be empirically validated. But then you had the development of Erickson, which I consider an experiential approach that psychotherapy is a symbolic drama of change, the imperative of which is by living this drama, you can transform yourself into a more adaptive state. Now we have the advent of affective neurobiology and understanding that we're treating the brain and that the mind creates the brain and how you use your mind creates your brain. And we're understanding things about episystemic uh, uh, um, uh, uh, phenomena that can really inform change in psychotherapy. So over the course from 1885 up until 2017, we have seen a proliferation of perspectives that have become much more um, favorable to clients because there are many more perspectives and techniques that can be used for helping people than existed during the first 60 years in which psychotherapy was invented. And so now we have more people coming to psychotherapy. My mother was a psychotherapy consumer and uh, she was in psychotherapy at a time when psychotherapy was not fashionable. Oh my God, you're going to a therapist? You must be crazy. No, People are taking much more advantage of the fact that they can um, do things, they can get some expertise to improve their emotions, their thinking, their attitudes, and their relationships, and even their physiology. So it's much more common for people to feel comfortable nowadays about going into therapy and getting some help. I think Harriet Lerner, who I, is, I just spoke with a week or two ago, was, uh, mentioned that she actually started therapy when she was three, that her mother sent her to a therapist and just assumed, like, this is part of life, like having this external person to help you get perspective and see the world differently and get, uh, get unstuck or whatever it was. So she has had this lifelong um relationship as a consumer of therapists as long along with being a, a transformer of how therapy is practiced yeah, she's a special person and a dear friend and uh, i don't recommend therapy for a three-year-old and uh, <laughs> i my first introduction to therapy when i was about eight i remember that my mother took me to a therapist because i was getting sick a lot i remember being in the therapist's office and being asked to play with puppets and stage a little drama which I did, and the therapist wisely kept my mother, and I got better and stopped being sick so much. <laughs> so when I you know, work with children, I think that the family is the best context, context for children to accomplish the things that they need. So I tend to be a systemic therapist, a family therapist, rather than seeing children individually. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm wondering, Given this question of what it takes to like actually get someone into therapy, it's common for couples for one half of the couple to really want to go see a therapist and the other to be ambivalent or resistant. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about strategies for the person who really wants to get their partner into uh, to couples therapy with them. 
Yes, well, the, you you don't need necessarily to have the couple to change the relationship. An individual is capable of doing things that change a relationship. So uh, there are some therapists who would not see an individual with a couple's problem, but I would see an individual with a couple's problem and think that I could make a difference. Mm. Now, the recalcitrant person well, you know, there's all kinds of uh, strange things that therapists do, which is, for example, to ascribe bizarre motives to the person who is not coming to the therapy session so that the person who is not coming into therapy session wants to come in and correct the therapist from his bizarre impressions. That would be a strategic technique a la Chloe Madonis in a strategic school of psychotherapy. Um, but also... You know, just saying to people, as I have many times, I, I can't get a full x-ray of what's going on until I see the system. So could you please bring your spouse in for one session and uh, let's help me to understand the full context of what's going on. And your spouse can explain to me about all of the things that you're doing that really doesn't work. And I need to know that from his, her perspective. So these are... Um, concerns that every therapist addresses and because therapy is such a unique uh, way of approaching things, each therapist has a different way of working when there's one reluctant spouse and one spouse member who's avid about coming to therapy, but there's no correct rule for how to handle that. It sounds like that suggestion of um, you know, I, could you bring your spouse in for at least one session so I can see the the whole system at work might might be sort of an appeal to a to a higher authority almost to get the mm -hmm. to get the spouse to agree to come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, speaking of, I'm curious because you train lots of people. Your like your schedule is is full of workshops that you're doing all over the world. Yes. And some of your work is training therapists and some of your work is training coaches. And, um, and I'm curious for you, what is, what is the distinction that you hold between what a therapist does and what a coach is doing? Well, it's like there's two schools of marital therapy. There's a school of marital enhancement, there's a school of marital therapy. And oftentimes the people who are interested in each of these discrete areas don't talk to each other. Like if it's marriage encounter, you're taking a good marriage and you're trying to make it better. If it's marital therapy, you're taking some situation, for example, one spouse being addicted, and you're trying to uh, do something that changes the pathology that's in the system. So coaches are normally working with people who don't have a pathological state. They don't have a state that is um, interfering terribly with their psychosocial functioning. And so coaching is, is really designed to focus on uh, a philosophy of taking somebody that's taking something that's good and making the good excellent. Therapy is more designed to taking something that's functioning poorly and moving it into the range of functioning good and eventually functioning in a way that's more excellent. So coaches are not really trained to work with understanding 
the um, ins and outs of, of human pathology. They are more dis- trained about how to work with bettering systems. So if, if, the, if, the, if the problem is how do you make a team function better, hire a coach. If the problem is how do you help somebody to deal with their passive aggressive behavior or depressive attitude, hire a therapist. Yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, great. Well, I'm I'm wondering for you if we have time for one more question. Of course. And that would be, um, how does someone? What can I bring to therapy so that I'm going to get the best possible outcome? Well, you know, in some forms of therapy like a personality disturbance where somebody is just not intersecting with the world in, a, in an easy way, then you would need a more long-term therapy that was geared towards helping you to change those personality characteristics. I'm a brief therapist. So when people come to me, usually they have a circumscribed problem. And what they want is somebody who's a tour guide and not a companion traveler. If you're looking to change your personality, you may need somebody who will be there as a um, companion traveler and help you to work through the exigencies of how to reorganize who it is that you are in the world. When people come to me, I try to get what is a very clear, concrete, visible, visualizable problem. Like I'll be living in in a way that's free of smoking. What does that look like? Well, I'm comfortable in social situations. I don't need to uh, have a prop. And it's okay. So I try to get people to have a video description of what it is that they want to accomplish. And when people come in to see me, if they already have that video description, it makes the therapy flow much more quickly and move forward much more quickly. Uh, and But many times people are coming because they don't even know what the problem is. They really can't even define what it is that's ailing them. They only know that they are in a situation where things aren't working so well. And then I might have to help somebody to target, to identify what it is that they want to accomplish. So if clients, when they seek therapy, can spend a little time formulating what their goal is, what is the outcome that they want to achieve in positive terms? Not that I want to stop smoking, but I want to commit myself to healthy living. Okay, what does healthy living look like? So the more that you can create a very clear image of the outcome that you want, probably the easier it'll be for the therapist to help you. Got it. So if you are sitting there and thinking, all right, finally, I'm going to go do this, or maybe you're thinking, wow, I wonder why things haven't been progressing that well with my therapist, this would be a great time to stop and uh take a few moments and identify your vision of what you're actually shooting for and what you're hoping for in your life. And, um, or if you don't know, then maybe that's what you bring to your therapist saying, Hey, I don't, I can't even formulate this vision of what life could be like. Could you help me do that? Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Jeff Saig, thank you so much for being with us again on Relationship Alive. It's such a treat to be able to talk with you and get your perspective and vast 
knowledge of the field. And um, if people want to find out more about your work and what you're doing, um, what are some ways that they could do that? Well, I, uh, the professional people, if they go to ericsson-foundation.com, then they can see the work of the Ericsson Foundation that I established 40 years ago. For consumers who are interested, for example, in habits, if you go to positiveaddictions.com or positiveaddiction.com, you can see the latest book that I have that is more for consumers on the habit of a healthy life. There's also another book, 10commandmentsforcouples.com, that people could look at if they want to have some inspirational thinking about their relationship. But again, most of my work is training professionals, helping them to be better practitioners with, with, uh, within the scope of their practice. And you've done so much to evolve the field. I can't help but be curious, like for you, what's your, what's your North Star at the moment? What are you What's driving you? What's your mission? What are you hoping to achieve now in your life? Well, it, 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 the good thing about psychotherapy, if you're an athlete like a, a, um, a gymnast, you might have reached your pinnacle when you're 15. We uh, Psychotherapists keep on growing and developing over the course of their life. So we can have people who are in their 80s or even 90s who are sentient, who can still be developing their craft. I'm consistently interested in developing my craft. And as you know, one of the things that I explore is the realm of evocative communication. Evocative communication is the realm of art. All arts are based in evocative rather than informative uh, communication. Informative communication is science. Evocative communication is poetry or uh, dance or theater or movies. And uh, what I do is I try to learn from experts in evocative communication. This is my special area of expertise within psychotherapy. So, for example, at the Evolution of Psychotherapy conference coming up in December, I'm going to be talking to Rob Capolo, a composer who is uh, a media personality who has a series, What Makes Music Great? And he's a genius. He's a brilliant person about being able to deconstruct music. I will say, you know, Mr. Capolo, if you want to teach a composer how do you do strategic development of a theme in music, then how can I take some of that same concept and apply that to being a, psych a better psychotherapist? I'm going to interview David White, a poet, and I'm going to ask him, okay, you know, Mr. White, tell me about how you think about creating a metaphor, because metaphors can be so valuable as evocative experiences in helping people to change their state. So what I try to do is to uh, interest myself in taking things from other fields, even bridge. Uh, how do you think about setting up the uh, 12th, the 13th trick in a hand? And that's a strategic process. And if I can learn those strategic processes, I might apply those to making myself a better therapist. So I'm, I'm like a corporate raider. I try to take things from different fields and use those things to improve my craft. Mm, I, I'm particularly drawn to things like that as well, where you see how it's all interrelated and can sort of, I think it's the fragmentation that 
seems to be reversing itself. It seems like more and more people are talking about interdisciplinary work and how various fields inform each other. But we're, I think, coming out of an era of like incredible specialization that really kept people separate. And hopefully, from my perspective, it's that interdisciplinary weaving that's happening that brings people together more relationally as well. It's a line from Gregory Bateson to look for the pattern which connects. And uh, rather than looking at things in such minute, disparate ways, um, and uh, I hope that what you're saying is right, because specialization has uh, become a dominant discourse and trying to look for the interrelationship uh, requires somebody thinking from a more systemic perspective. I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. And okay, I have to sneak in one more question, and sure. which is, do you have an agenda like when you're bringing people together for evolution of psychotherapy, for instance, is there like a secret goal that you have that you wouldn't mind revealing to the world right now about what you see or what you desire as where the field is headed and what you would like to see happen? Well, yes, because when I started in 1985, the evolution conference was a little like Star Wars you know, mine is bigger, better than yours. And people were arguing their philosophy about psychotherapy. Over the course of these more than 30 years, there's been much more impetus towards integration where people are looking over the fence and saying, well, what are you doing on your side of the fence? No, yeah, I'm doing something similar and maybe I can do something even better by looking at what it is that you're doing. So the, the first say, 100 years of psychotherapy were based in a more divergent way of thinking. And now I hope that the evolution conferences have given some impetus to a more convergent way of thinking. What are the commonalities that make psychotherapy work rather than emphasizing and extolling the differences from experts, but also because of my own particular psychology um, a lot of the evolution conference is about honoring four fathers and four mothers, the people whose innovations swimming upstream for so much of their life made psychotherapy happen. And so I organize a party where the people who have studied these uh, masters who have created contemporary psychotherapy can honor those people for the contributions that they have made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such a valuable way of contributing to the field. And, and I particularly appreciate that idea of having people in discourse about what's working and sharing, sharing notes. Um, I have, I have a fantasy about doing relationship alive live, like in various places around the country and bringing people together who are in those places to have those discourses about couples work and relationship and what we know, what we don't. And, uh, and hopefully to evolve the conversation that way. Bless you. Super. Thank you. Well, Jeff, thanks again for being here on Relationship Alive. As I mentioned at the beginning, we will have detailed show notes for today's episode. You can visit neilsatin.com slash zeig2, that's Z-E-I-G and the number two. Um, we'll also have links to all of the things that Jeff mentioned over the course of the conversation, along with his websites and ways to find out more information about his work. 
or you can always text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions to get the show notes. Thanks again, Jeff, for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Really a pleasure. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.